0: Good evening, my name is Vivian Fisher and I manage the African American Department here at the Central Library. It is my pleasure to welcome you here this evening on behalf of our CEO, Dr. Carla Hayden, and the library boards of trustees and directors and the staff. I welcome you here this evening for this 100th birthday celebration. This evening, it is my pleasure to introduce to you Marvin L. Doc Cheatham, Sr., public servant, health enthusiast, civil rights leader, and human rights activist. Doc Cheatham, Sr. is a life member and former president of the NAACP Baltimore chapter. He is also a life member of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity, Inc., and since 1973, he has registered more voters in the state of Maryland than anyone. He is the recipient of over 300 awards, citations, plaques, and certificates. Too too many to name. And in 2009, he received the honorary degree, Doctor of Humane Letters, from Sojourner Douglas College. His list of achievements goes on and on and on. However, he tends to follow the creed of his motto be concerned, get involved, and stay committed. Please join me in welcoming Doc Cheatham to the Pratt Library, who will introduce this evening's speakers.
1: Good Good
2: evening. Good evening. Thank you all so, so very much for being here with us here this evening. We are now in the fourth of a five-day celebration of the history and the life of what we consider to be, if not the greatest civil rights leader, one of the greatest civil rights leaders ever. We are so honored that you have come here today, but even more so, we have the Mitchell family here. And later in the program, when we bring up uh, two of the sons of Clarence Mitchell, Jr., we will allow them to introduce all of the family members and others that they deem appropriate. Uh, But we just want to welcome you all here. Uh, I want to inform you of the co-chair of this event. He was the other crazy person that decided that we could spend our time and energy trying to do what Baltimore City and the state of Maryland had not done. And that was to educate and celebrate our community uh, on Clarence Mitchell, Jr., and none other than Michael Eugene Johnson. He is the executive director of the Paul Robeson Institute. And I'm also happy to say he's also a candidate. He's going to be running in the 9th Councilmanic District. So... uh, we'll hear from michael a little bit later we're going to immediately go immediately into the program we think there's no need to do a whole lot of fluff and circumstance you came here to hear uh... professor denton so i'm going to read his bio after we've heard from professor denton we will ask both michael Bowen mitchell and dr keefer mitchell to come and be seated up here with us uh... and then we of course do a question and answer period and of course mike since you are co-chair doc starts messing up you know pull my coattail. just don't embarrass me too bad so I'm going to go ahead and attempt to to read uh, this outstanding bio I don't know how we were able to condense it to the size that it is uh, but that's probably because uh, that's the best thing that we could do Professor Watson is a historical documentary editor and member of the American Studies faculty at SUNY College at Old Westbury on Long Island, New York. He is editing a seven volume edition Of the papers of Clarence Mitchell Jr. and of the NAACP Washington Bureau, which is composed of the civil rights lobbyist reports from nineteen forty-two to nineteen seventy-eight, under the sponsorship of SUNY College at Old Westbury, with funding from the National Historical Publications and Records Commission, NHPRC, and the Harry Frank Oh, I don't think I want to try to pronounce that. (laughs) What is okay, Professor? Guggenheim? Man. Oh, it, it reads like it says, huh? Okay. <laughs>
0: Publications and the Records
2: Commission uh, and the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation. As director of the NAACP Washington Bureau from 1950 to 1978, uh, Mitchell led the struggle for patches of the civil rights law. In October 2005, volume one and two of the papers covering Mitchell's tenure as associate director of field operations at the Fair Employment Practice Commission from 1942 to 1946 were published by Cities Universities Press uh, and the Watson Biography also was there. I could continue reading on, I do know that this is published uh, in the library so I think without further ado you came here to see and listen to hear from Professor Denton L. Watson. Please join me in welcoming him here and thank you for being here.
3: Thank you so much, Dr. Cheatham. Uh, you know, when, uh, not so long ago, was it, two or three weeks or four weeks ago, uh, I got a call when I was in my office there at SUNY College at Old Westbury, and uh, this gentleman identified himself as uh, Dr. Marvin Cheatham and so forth, and that he was uh, past activist or leader of president of the NAACP branch and so forth and that he, he, he explained what he wanted me to do. I said, oh, hey, great, that's it, so forth, and he, readily I accepted, and so here I am. Uh, also, uh, at this time, in any, uh, I must also give Michael Johnson here, express my appreciated appreciation to him for his efforts in organizing this program. Also, uh, thanks to uh, Ms. Vivian F- uh, Fisher, who was here earlier, of the library, for her uh, part in supporting this program. Thanks also to uh, Faith uh, uh, Edmonds, of the staff of the library. Oh, there you are. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, we, uh, Faith and I worked uh, quite uh, closely in making all of the arrangements and in her. Uh, setting up, doing the reservations for me at the hotel and so forth and all of that and getting me a uh, ticket, Amtrak <laughs> ticket and so forth. So here I am. Uh, to the family, Mike of course, and uh, I've known them all of these years, thanks to Clarence uh, uh, Jr. <laughs> and to Juanita, and uh, matriarch and patriarch of the family, all. Uh, to... Uh, Kiefer, Nanette, thanks so much for coming by. Lisa and her two little ones, thanks so much for uh, coming by and so forth. And indeed, I do feel that uh, I am very much a part of the Mitchell family, Haven't been uh, working with uh, all of you so closely on my mission here, which is documenting and preserving and presenting, making uh, available to the public the works and contributions of uh, Mitchell Jr. of course I wish I had also the time to do the same for Juanita because she definitely uh, deserves that type of recognition and uh, hopefully at some point someone will really pick up the uh, uh, take the baton on and uh, start working on hers because uh, her works and Lily Carol Jackson's works uh, must not be forgotten Uh, To all of you, thanks for coming here. Who was Clarence Mitchell, Jr., and why are we celebrating the centennial of his birth? To begin, we all know that Clarence Mitchell, Jr. was a part of the Lily and Juanita Jackson civil rights dynasty here in Baltimore and, indeed, Maryland. Clarence, of course, led the NAACP's operations in Washington while Lily Carol Jackson, or Dr. Jackson, as she was also known, and her daughter Juanita, browbeat the daylights out (laughs) of uh, racial (laughs) wrongdoers here in the state from governors and public school administrators and and other officials into heeding the NAACP's demands for an end to segregation and discrimination. They had the indispensable help of the courts, of course. And the legendary Thurgood Marshall, who, like Clarence, was another of your distinguished native sons from 1935 until he became a federal judge in 1962, gave overall leadership to the unending legal challenges against segregation. Marshall's legacy is symbolized, of course, by Brown versus Board of Education, the landmark school desegregation case of 1954. I won't go into that naturally. Everyone knows that. So Lily Jackson and Juanita also had their parallel histories as dedicated leaders in the struggle to end racial injustices in this state. I was a freedom fighter. I was a firebrand, Juanita used to say. And uh, indeed she was, serving as a torchbearer for racial justice, not only here in Maryland, but also across the nation, as the NAACP's first youth secretary. Given the extent of the personal sacrifices and dedications to human justice of Lily Carol Jackson and Juanita, we must never forget their contributions to the modern civil rights movement. Juanita and Clarence and the other young people of their day followed Ma Jackson's call to them to use your education and training for the benefit of your, of your people. And so they did. Clarence Mitchell Jr. was born on March 8, 1911, son of Elsa Davis and Clarence Maurice Mitchell. Clarence Sr. was a hotel waiter, a chef, and a musician. Elsie did laundry at home for a living. Young Clarence used to be sickened by the sight of his mother slaving over large tubs of dirty clothes laundering them by hand and boiling them over a fire to get them spotlessly cleaned. That is how she learned her living. At the same time she would be frying fish for dinner for her family as a result of the lifelong juxtaposition of the two scenes in Clarence's mind, he could never for the rest of his life stand the smell of fried fish. And he never (laughs) ate it. So he never again ate it. Only earlier today, uh, I was having lunch with Michael, and he recalled for me how for the rest of the family, All the rest of the family never dared to have the smell of fried fish in the house when their daddy wasn't around. If they brought fried fish into the house for a meal, they had better get that fish, the (laughs) smell, out of the house before he came, or all hell would break loose. (laughs) I remember some time ago while I was writing line in the lobby, my biographer of Clarence, I took a ride through Stockton Street. And pressman Street in West Baltimore. That was a place where young Clarence was born, and it was very typical of Baltimore City's poor neighborhoods. The streets were narrow and paved with cobblestone. Yet, though Clarence grew up very poor, his per- parents made sure he was not poor in spirit or outlook. The result was that he left us with a rich and vast legacy of civil rights history, showing his role in helping to shape the social and legislative foundations of our nation that will last for as long as the United States shall exist. And why is that so? It is so simply because Clarence Mitchell's legacy was carved in the foundations of essential law and good law that Congress passed to strengthen the American Constitution and the nation's social fabric. The actuality of the laws, that is getting them enacted, is what defines Clarence Mitchell's monumental civil rights legacy. A very significant part of this legacy that his copious records document is how he worked to get the laws passed. It is installing this area of his collection of historical records that we see the truly human side of him and the genius of his struggles. This is where we experience his legendary statesmanship and the eloquence of his deep, vased voice that he used to convert hesitant and doubting lawmakers to his fervent appeals that they pass good civil rights laws. And I emphasize good, because many would have been satisfied simply to pass anything called civilized laws, but it would not have been effective. I, is that you Clarence Fort? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Clarence Mitchell, Jr. believed in the humanness of everyone and this belief was what made him so effective in the endless, as he endlessly worked the halls of Congress day in and day out when many of his associates did not believe that Congress could be made to pass the laws he sought. That's the way it was. Right up until 1962, most of the civil rights leaders did not believe that Congress could be made to pass meaningful civil rights laws. Certainly, Congress by then had passed the 1957 Civil Rights Act, the first such law since Reconstruction, But except for the creation of the Civil Rights Section of the Justice Department of the Civil Rights and the Civil Rights Commission, the 1957 Civil Rights Act was a weak, compromise voting rights bill. But while some despaired, Clarence was hardened by the passage because that law broke the 82-year psychological barrier against the enactment of civil rights laws by Congress. So except for the die-hard race baiters like Senator James Eastland of Mississippi and Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, Clarence Mitchell never wrote off the vote of any lawmaker. And that was how he was able to win Lyndon Johnson to his side once the Texan entered the White House. When Johnson was leader of the Senate, the two men used to have some fears personal battles. But even though the times and conditions of the period made it difficult, impossible really, for them to see eye to eye, in the process of their repeated confrontations both Clarence and Lyndon Johnson developed a deep intense respect and even admiration for each other. That was how Mitchell won passage of the 1957 Civil Rights Act. It was Johnson who recognized that the time had come to pass a civil rights law and led in engineering a compromise bill. The compromise enabled him to win a promise from fellow southerners that they would not filibuster or talk to death the bill as they had done with previous measures. Even so, to the disgust of many, that rootin-tootin segregationist from Thurmond broke the agreement and waged an all-night filibuster. The only two people who sat through the all-night vigil as Thurmond rocked back and forth like a metronome was Clarence Mitchell and Thurmond's wife. That only showed once more the nature of the process in Congress. No one could be ever sure how things would turn out until the final vote. In my many interviews with Clarence, he recalled for me the process of his developing friendship with LBJ, Lyndon. One day, when he approached him <clears throat> to talk business, Johnson, who then was Majority Leader of the Senate, invited Clarence to his little office, uh, Majority Leader's office in the chamber, next next to the chamber. As was uh, Johnson's custom, he took out a bottle of his southern favorite to have an afternoon drink and invited Clarence to join him. Imagine Clarence Mitchell drinking. (laughs) Even though he did not drink, he readily accepted the invitation. That was normal. As Clarence pretended (laughs) to sip his drink with the majority leader, Johnson advised him, now see here Clarence, don't you go out and tell those boys that we were in here like this, drinking together. Clarence, with a twinkle in his eye, <laughs> said, that's all right, Lyndon, you don't have to worry about them, for if my mother-in-law, that's Lilla Jackson, should see us here together, we would be in a lot more trouble than if the Ku Klux Klan saw us. <laughs> Given the revolutionary impact of the civil rights laws that Clarence Mitchell led in shaping and in getting Congress to pass, why is it that we hear so little about him? A veteran newsman recently asked, me. that was when I came down to tape that program there at uh, 11 on the Hill.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: <clears throat> For Clarence Mitchell Jr. was really, really a leader of the modern civil rights movement. Indeed, Dr. Aaron Henry, president of the state conference of, Missis- of uh, NAACP branches in Mississippi back in the 60s and 1970s, uh, explained to me one day in his guttural Mississippi drawl that Clarence was the chief strategist of the modern civil rights movement. <laughs> and sure he was, because civil uh, legislation, the civil rights struggle, the, pass- the struggle for the civil rights laws, was the principal goal of the movement. The answer to the question about why we do not hear more about Clarence Mitchell Jr., I therefore explained, was the nature of his work and the NAACP's program. Mitchell was a lobbyist who worked the halls of Congress advocating the passage of civil rights laws. Not a street fighter. He was not a street fighter. He was a constitutional humanist. Not a moral humanist like the Reverend King. So, though their goals were similar, their strategies for achieving them were dramatically different. Rather than appealing like King through the power of oratory to the soul of those whom he sought to convert to racial justice, Clarence Mitchell utilized the other tools the founders of the nation provided him through the Constitution to pass the civil rights laws and those tools were inherent in the structure of two of the three branches of government, the legislative and the executive. Let let me explain that on this occasion, I could focus on any of the many aspects of Francis' works, or on the national policy implications of a bill, of some bill he advocated before Congress. But so many people respond with Clarence, who, when I mention the name to them. So pardon me, folks, if you already know about the nature of his work, because I am convinced it is necessary to ensure that those who don't know about his work get a basic primer. Clarence Mitchell, Jr. worked by advocating civil rights laws that were shaped within the framework of the Constitution. Those bills, determined by, determined by the complaints the NAACP National Office and the NAACP Washington Bureau received from its members through its nationwide network of branches. Clarence followed the parliamentary rules of the Senate and the House that he learned by studying the rule book that, of the House that Representative or Congressman Adam Clayton Powell, Jr. of Harlem, gave him and by spending endless hours in the Senate gallery watching the proceedings below. That is how he learned there. He learned from Lyndon Johnson, who when <coughs> he was Senate Majority and Mitchell was badgering him to support a civil rights bill, demanded of the lobbyists, Clarence, how many votes do you have? Johnson said that so many times that <coughs> to Clarence that he finally got the message. He learned so well that without the votes, he could pass nothing. So he began keeping a little notebook in his hip pocket (coughs) in which he carefully noted every vote that he could get on for a particular bill from any member of the House uh, who was important to that process. The tabs he kept for a series of... uh, were a series of little check boxes against House or Senate members names, noting exactly how each stood on the bill. So the number of votes available for a particular bill became a paramount concern for Terrence Mitchell. <coughs> Next, Mitchell worked by educating members of the House and Senate committees about the need <coughs> for a particular bill I have prepared detailed testimonies by NWCP uh, representatives before Congressional Committees. You can get a hint of the uh, numerous times uh, Clarence testified before Congressional Committee by visiting the website www.clarencemitchellpapers.com. Or you can also uh, go uh, to that website simply by uh, Googling my name, Denton L you have to put in the L. L. Watson, Denton L. Watson, and that will come up. But please be advised, <coughs> the list that is currently posted uh, on the site at the moment is way out of date. I have now completed the entire list, and the first one has been published in volumes one and two of the Papers of Terence Mitchell Jr. One day when I am able to afford it, I will revise the uh, the, the site, the website, the Clarence Mitchell Papers website and post all the lists on this. But let me ask you this. Uh, How many times did you think the Reverend Martin Luther King in his lifetime testified before a congressional committee? How many times?
2: Zero. One. One.
3: One. 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 Clarence? Over 120, well, it's much, much over that because I've completed the uh, website and uh, sorry, the listing. I haven't bought it because the list is so thick. So that's the difference. That's the difference in how they work. I uh, emphasize this not to uh, denigrate any of King's works, but merely to stress the difference in how they work. It was extremely significant. The importance here again is recognizing that the Congressional Committees considered the bills as a first step of the process or in the process of marking up a bill. <coughs> considered civil rights hearings sorry, as a first step in marking up bills and approving it uh, with recommendations for consideration before the bill was sent to the floor of the House or Senate for debate and vote. On many occasions, Clarence brought witnesses to join him in testifying about the types of racial wrongs the nation needed to end with the passage of a law. Because he did not have a seat in either the House or Senate, Clarence needed members of both chambers to wage the fight inside for him. So, beginning in 1956, he organized bipartisan uh, committees of Democrats and republican lawmakers in both chambers of the congress those coalitions <coughs> or committees, bipartisan committees were composed uh... yes of civil rights stalwarts uh, like uh, Re- representative emmanuel seller of new york franklin roosevelt of uh, democrat of california senator thomas hennings of missouri and. Surely, uh, Hubert Humphrey, Senator Hubert Humphrey of Minnesota. But, very notably, other key members of his bipartisan committees included dedicated conservatives like Clarence Brown of Ohio and Senator William Nolan of uh, California. They were highly respected conservatives. Clarence knew it required Republicans as well as Democrats. Uh, and liberals as well as conservatives to lead the struggle for passage of civil rights laws on the floor. In fact, so much did he court conservative senators that many believed that he was a Republican. But no, he said, he explained to me, no, I was always a registered independent and indeed I've seen it in the records where he was a registered independent. As a lobbyist, therefore, unlike Reverend King and the student activists, those young uh, stormtroopers in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, and Congress of Racial Equality Corps, Clarence Mitchell Jr. could not openly and angrily confront those whose vote he needed in the halls of Congress to win passage of a law. Clarence Mitchell could not use civil disobedience to arouse national passions against the wrongs he was fighting to end and most important neither could he as a matter of strategy attract the glare of publicity on the congress as a body of racists and sinner, racist and sinners so as to shame its members because doing so would have been suicidal it would have so outraged lawmakers all of them that <clears throat> they would have become his enemies for life. And so there would have been no civil rights laws. Remember, in addition to members who came from the one-party Democratic South and normally voted against civil rights, many lawmakers came from states and districts with very few or no blacks. Members from those states, therefore, or districts, therefore, had little or no intrinsic interests, political interests, in matters concerning minorities. They had to use or see racial issues from a national perspective. So, confronting them through demonstrations would only have again made them die-hard die hard opponents along with the southerners. Furthermore, civil rights laws were very def, uh, delicate stuff. For the most part, most members would not have had any trouble voting for a meaningless bill, vacuous, empty, but openly supporting a strong law could cause a congressman or senator his job. And in the 1950s and the 60s, civil rights was a lightning rod issue in Congress. That was especially so with the type of meaningful laws the NAACP wanted Congress to pass to destroy the treasured Jim Crow way of life in the in America's South. Therefore, like Thurgood Marshall, Clarence Mitchell Jr. was undeviating in leading and building the legislative phase of the modern civil rights movement in Congress. Both Thurgood and Clarence, in keeping with the administrative functions and policies of the NAACP, for which they both worked, thus worked inside the government, enlisting the support of the leaders of government to achieve their goals. For the most part, therefore, Clarence Mitchell, like Thurgood Marshall, and I'm here repeating what I said earlier, could not draw publicity to himself, because doing so would have been self-defeating. Thurgood and Clarence could not have won their struggles in the court and the Congress, had their primary strategy been directing the national spotlight first and foremost on themselves to reveal to the nation the embedded structure of Jim Crow. So, even to this day, the nature of Clarence's work has robbed him of the public recognition and accolades he mightily deserves. Presidents like Lyndon Johnson, however, were always aware of Clancy's demands for presidential leadership in the legislative struggle. Obtaining such leadership was central to his work from the moment he became director of the NAACP Washington Bureau in 1950. Thus every president from Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, and yes Lyndon Johnson, so Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter were fully aware of his forceful advocacy. The study of the leadership of any of these presidents on civil rights therefore demands the companion study of how Clarence Mitchell worked with them and their administrations to pass and administer these laws. So, as I have documented in line in the lobby, And the four edited volumes of the papers of Clarence Mitchell Jr. that I have so far completed, Clarence sacrificed the glare of publicity for the satisfaction of providing a bedrock legacy of accomplishment in the Congress in the form of the 1957 Civil Rights Act, the 1960 Civil Rights Act, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and the 1968 Fair Housing Act, all of which he led to passage. Additionally, his legacy includes constructive national policies that are being administered and implemented by the executive branch. It is for those reasons, the passage of those laws, uh, that are essential for protecting the rights of African Americans, and all others whose 14th Amendment and 15th Amendment rights need protecting that we are here today celebrating the centennial of Clarence Mitchell's birth. As such, Baltimore and Maryland will forever be indebted to Clarence Mitchell Jr. for leading the struggle to pass the civil rights laws as a means of directing national attention to the legacy as well as of showing or appreciation for his leadership in, leadership in Congress, I have <coughs> proposed to Senator Barbara Mikulski that she initiate an effort to have Congress face a bust of Clarence Mitchell Jr. in the rotunda of the Capitol. Thank you. I am here asking all of you to join me in this effort. Make it a movement, please. It is one that he deserves. It is one that Maryland deserves. Let us not forget his contributions to building the constitutional foundations of our country. I remember when I was working here in the late 1970s as a member of the editorial board of the Baltimore Sun, Mm -hmm. how so many residents rejoiced that Mayor Donald Schaefer had led in renaming the Baltimore City Courthouse the Clarence Mitchell Jr. Courthouse. I therefore urge Maryland urge you again to follow in that great initiative by again urging Congress to place a bust of Clarence in the Rotunda. That most certainly would also encourage the current and future members of that great branch of government to remain true to the mission he led and to ensure that our national legislative body continue to uphold the values that he led to represent in the passage of the civil rights laws. So in ending, let us remember the profound quality of the eulogy that Senator Howard Baker delivered in the chamber to his colleagues upon the death of Clarence in 1984. In those days, as Senator Baker said, Clarence Mitchell was called the 101st senator, but those of us who served here then knew full well how uh, this magnificent lion in the lobby was a great deal more influential than most of us would see here in the chamber. Thank you. <laughs> Let's
2: give Professor another great round of applause. going to do a couple real quick housekeeping chores and then i'm going to turn over the question and answer period uh to michael eugene johnson our co-chair and michael of course uh bring up two sons one uh tomorrow there is a breakfast tomorrow uh we're happy to say that hillary shelton the current Washington Bureau Director will be the speaker for the breakfast. The breakfast will be at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning at the Forum Caterers, which is 4210 Primrose uh, Lane, Primrose Road, right off of Rice's Town Road, Plaza. Yes, we do have additional tickets, but you would definitely need to get them uh, today because by tomorrow we will be sold out and won't have enough food for those that want to come. Uh, second, if you haven't seen the front window of Ina Pratt near the library, near the Mulberry Street side, you definitely need to see it. They have two very distinctive w- windows, so we ask that if you can, please take a quick look at those. Uh, we will definitely follow the lead and deal with the bus in the Rotunda. We are happy to say that both United States Senator Cardin and Congressman uh, uh, Cummings have accepted our earlier recommendation this past winter uh, to re- uh, request a stamp, stamp be made with the United States Postal Service. So that document has been officially sent to them. Um, as a result of the discussions we had both Saturday, which was the panel discussion, and the church service yesterday, it has been recommended, and we will be following through with the creation of a historic civil rights foundation here in Baltimore because many of our citizens here in Baltimore have no idea that the mecca of civil rights is here in Baltimore City. (laughs) And some not so good news. Unfortunately, uh, some of the real challenging things that i had happen today one of them was that i got a call first from the mitchell courthouse that the judge Judge Snyder, who is the uh the normal person that gives the tours now that we don't have uh pat jessamy because pat normally did the tours at the courthouse we were scheduled tomorrow evening from five to seven to have the tour unfortunately he was taken to the hospital today uh but lo and behold During that period of time, from leaving the courthouse to getting to the hospital, I get an email from him, and he's apologizing to me because he had to go to the hospital. He asked me to say this very clearly. He really wanted to do that tour for it on behalf of the family. He asked me uh, to say that. And The other thing was that shortly after I got that one, I got the email uh, and a call from Wade Henderson, who was also one of the uh, Washington Bureau Chiefs. Uh, for the NAACP and as you well know Mr. Mitchell was also the head of the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights that's where Wade Henderson is now. Wade extends his apologies because Wade was scheduled to be with us tomorrow he's got to testify in Congress tomorrow morning so uh, he's extending his apologies so I told him when we do the next part Part two of the Mitchell celebration, we'll make certain we bring him in. So, without further ado, let me invite uh, our co chair. Uh, Mike has put up a lot with me, and just that alone, <laughs> he deserves a round of applause. But well, Mike will run the rest of the program.
4: <laughs> How true. Uh, first, I'd uh, like to thank uh, everyone for just coming out. I mean, you could have done a lot of other things, but you uh, didn't think it robbery to come here tonight to uh, be part of this celebration that we've been doing uh, for the last couple of days. Uh, We also uh, had connected with Dr. Lonzo of of the school system to make a uh, teach out so that we hope that every student or every child had an opportunity to have one day of learning about uh, this great man. On a personal note, (laughs) uh, how honored I am I've had the opportunity to not only know the Mitchell family uh, I respect the Mitchell family I've also had the opportunity to meet I, I know Clarence Foren and I always say that the room should be jam packed because everybody they said that was at the March on Washington and then it was probably a billion people there but yet it's <laughs> always difficult uh, when we uh, go from there but you know sometimes they are bus drivers and then sometimes they are mechanics and the, the bus can't move unless the mechanics make sure the engine is running. So I always like to think of Clarence as a mechanic because if it wasn't for him, the bus it would not have moved. So I just want to personally thank the family uh, uh, for giving us uh, an opportunity to share your father, your grandfather, your great-great-grandfather uh, to us here and to the Enoch Pratt Library for giving us this opportunity to share this. I want to ask uh, Dr. Kiefer Mitchell, uh, and my, my name's Saint Michael Mitchell, uh, to join us uh, here <clears throat> <clears throat> I have to move my northwestern jacket Doc was talking about it because <laughs> it wasn't a city college gym I <laughs> and I also want to recognize Michael Lesker uh, a, a good uh, commentary and writer uh, and of course C4 uh, for coming here, and uh, you know, this is going to be kind of like a reflection, an opportunity if you have any questions where Doc is standing, there is a microphone, and let me also explain to you that this is also live on the pod, or whatever they call the thing now, Uh, so if you have any warrants, or anybody's looking for you, it probably wouldn't be a good opportunity, that's why I'm not, that's why I'm wearing glasses right now. So, uh, you know, to get an opportunity to do that. But we want to first allow, let's uh, um, uh, um, see which order we are, Dr. Kiefer Mitchell, uh, uh, and then Michael, to also give us some family reflections some family experience. And the mics are on, so you'll have every opportunity, and uh, I'll, 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 I'll turn to the handsome one first.
1: <laughs> well, I'm Kiefer Mitchell, and I have to say senior because I have a son, Kiefer Jr., and I have a grandson, Kiefer the third. So uh, my father was really real in terms of interacting with us uh, as children. Uh, when we were young, uh, they had the good wisdom of keeping all of those boys from being each- at each other's throats. So uh, we slept in bunk beds uh, in the second floor back bedroom and then our parents decided to install a novelty little self, little uh, wall phones so that you could call up to our bedroom whenever discipline was needed (laughs) to keep track of us. Well, this one night uh, we were raising a ruckus and my father picked up the phone in the kitchen and said, boys, keep quiet. And my brother Clarence uh, answered the phone, Who is this? (laughs) Whereby my father hung the phone up, and we could always tell his intent because we could hear his footsteps coming (laughs) fast and furious up the steps. So Clarence, uh, I slept on the bottom bunk, and Clarence slept on the top bunk. And uh, Clarence slept on the bottom bunk, and I was on the top bunk and uh, when Clarence heard my father's footsteps he told me, come on, let's switch bunks <laughs> and, and so I being very gullible uh, switched uh, to the bottom bunk and he climbed up to the top bunk the, dim, the room was dimly lit and my father came in immediately to recognizing my brother's voice on the phone to exact, uh, to exact uh, Discipline by way of a punch, whereupon I was hit, Clarence hollered, and my father quickly knew the difference. <laughs> and next thing I knew, Clarence was flying out of the top bottle. <laughs> to, um... And the second memory I have growing up is the giants of the lawyers assembled in our living room there was Charles Hamilton Houston and Thurgood Marshall and there there was this active dialogue in terms of legal principle but these lawyers were so brilliant they can make us understand what the issues were but little did I know they were paving the way for me to integrate Baltimore City Schools in 1954 I was an artist and uh, my parents always recognized that, and uh, would uh, give me art supplies. Well, I was in Booker T, a crowded school, very little art supplies, until my parents had me integrate Gwynns Falls Junior High School. And even though it wasn't very far from my home, it was seemed like miles away in terms of a different neighborhood. And so my father took me to school every day to try to bypass the hostile mob outside, protesting my presence. And so my parents and their wisdom, uh, in terms of my art interests, uh, selected that school because as I cloistered myself away from the mob activity outside, I stayed in the art department and in December of 1954, with materials that I hadn't been exposed to before, designed the linoleum block for the school newspaper cover of three kids window shopping. And then I went on to uh, win a citywide art contest uh, in my last year uh, at Gwynns Falls, and uh, they desegregated uh, the uh, Hoshokone department store downtown for us to get our awards. And uh, uh, it was in the uh, uh, restaurant uh, in the upper floor, and so my mother went with me. And my painting of Pennsylvania Station crowded with people. And I was uh, very proud that I was getting an award. And my mother came up and looked at that painting. And she asked me, is this really the world that we know? And I asked, "Uh, yes, this is the world. I know I represented all of the people. But she pointed out that none of the faces were African-Americans, thereby uh, justifying Dr. Kenneth Clark's premise of the damage of segregation so I am thrilled to be a participant as I was going through that turmoil in 1954 uh, my mother had a favorite passage in the Bible it was from kings uh, uh, 2 6 uh, uh, chapters 13 to 14 13 to 16 in which the Elisha, the prophet, uh, uh, went to escape the Assyrian army and camped out, and his servant uh, was keeping guard, and he looked uh, out the next day, and saw so the Assyrian army had uh, circled the camp. And so the servant in his favorite, uh, famous passage said, Oh, Master, how shall we do? And Elisha then prayed, Lord, pull back the veil and let him see the help that he has. And that happened, and the servants saw chariots of fire surrounding that Assyrian army. Little did I know that in my turmoil at Gwyn's Falls, my son would represent that neighborhood in the Baltimore City Council 41 years later.
4: Thank you. Thank you very much. And I can share, being the youngest of 11 myself, I can share beatings that I didn't deserve. (laughs) Many of them I did deserve, but I can share many of them that I didn't deserve. I want to now uh, have a reflection from Michael Mitchell. Uh, Michael, thank you.
5: Just briefly, um, I have to acknowledge the presence of Tony and Eleanor Carey. They are family. Um, His grandmother, Margaret Carey, along with Mrs. Elizabeth Gilman, who was the daughter of John Hoyt Gilman, the first president of Johns Hopkins University, and Juanita Jackson and Lily Jackson became the uh, campaign managers of Clarence Mitchell Jr.'s run for the House of Delegate, Delegates as a Norman Thomas socialist. The ticket, it was the first integrated ticket to run in Baltimore City, and it was a central city district. And Dr. Broadus Mitchell, who was a brilliant economist from Johns Hopkins, was running for the state senate. Well, neither of them won, but I always tell Tony that's what probably got him his family removed from the social list <laughs> in Baltimore. <laughs> but this was this Quaker tradition. And then it was the land donated by the Quakers, um, Elisha Tyson, to establish Sharp Street Church. Incredible, and I must note for you that as part of this effort, there will be opening the Lily Carroll Jackson Museum at 1320 Utah Place, her home, and there is the Margaret Carey room to show that kind of coming together of women of all colors who challenge our consciousness in the city. So, Tony and Eleanor, thank you, both brilliant lawyers. Uh, you might know Eleanor also straightened up the state of Rhode Island and made him a bit more ethical. Uh, and, but I think this is a tradition in which both of them serve. And here's Clarence Mitchell in 34, 23 years old. Uh, and that's why um, you want to see Clarence Mitchell, he's alive. Look out there, that's Clarence Mitchell IV. That's Clarence Mitchell Jr. Uh, same hue, same coloring. And my father used to wonder why the census takers put him down as mulatto. But in any event, <laughs> uh, this was, he said, the incompetence of the federal bureaucracy. Remember that Clarence Mitchell firmly believed in um, values, and he was able to throw that left hook because he, after having graduated from Lincoln University, and imagine the class members being um, who were one or two years ahead of him, Langston Hughes and Thurgood Marshall. And then his contemporaries, Benazikwe, who became the first governor general of Nigeria. And his roommate, his second roommate, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, the first president of Ghana. And having come home and graduated, he was a pre-medical student in 1932, and the year of the Depression. And the first thing that happened is the family suffered the indignity of having their home foreclosed on in the 700 block of uh, Carrollton Avenue. And they came home one day from work to find all of their belongings in the middle of Carrollton Avenue. And you've got to understand he was born at 1374 Stockton Alley. Now, Denton described it as a cobblestone paved, but my father said he didn't remember too many cobbles being there. <laughs> he said, because when it rained, it was just mud. And more importantly, he believed in um, young people. And that's why I come back, I found in the tapes, my father used to do incredible things. Uh, you heard about the, the intercom and Kiefer uh, getting the first punch. But there was also a tender side of him. I found where he, for two and a half hours, he had Clarence Mitchell IV and Lisa uh, mitchell Sinar, his grandchildren, he did a reel-to-reel tape, and just to listen to the two of them and their conversation and having been surrounded by different civil rights activities. And then for his uh, his grandson Kiefer Mitchell Jr., who all of these educators had said, oh no, he can't go very far because he's dyslexic. And Clarence Mitchell said, okay, and took him to meet Nelson Rockefeller at the observatory in Washington and have dinner with him. And as my father said, Nelson Rockefeller said, see here, young man, I'm dyslexic and I became vice president of the United States. You can do anything you want to do. And that was his way of letting us know. And Denton also described him as this very quiet and caring person. Well, I remember the Ku Klux Klan came to picket our home on Druid Hill Avenue and my father just happened to be watering the flowers that day and um, the Klan members got drenched and actually had to take off their hoods Uh, and Clarence Mitchell then as they moved up the street to uh, the NAACP office at Lanville in Druid Hill uh, he went into the house and got a piece of cardboard and asked me to find some shoe polish and then he put on there that the the fighting American nationalists and the Nazis and Klan were a bunch of skunks. (laughs) So, But he would also, in his moment, Kiefer described that Grins Falls Park Junior High School moment. There were 5,000 whites from all of Edmondson Village who were determined to keep uh, Kiefer going into the school. And only Clarence Mitchell could go and prepare his own sign to say, I am an American too. And uh, and the other part was, you go back to Africa. And uh, Clarence Mitchell said, uh, uh, I'm not going anywhere. My son's going to get a first-class education. One other side of him you don't know, and that was, he penned eloquence (laughs) and his love letters, which hopefully will get published (laughs) shortly. And he, I'm going to give you the last paragraph of his letter, To my mother, because they they courted for almost nine years, Um, and because Miss Lily Jackson, my grandmother said boys and books didn't mix, so he said he would decide he became a book to get in, and um, he says you are here, my own Juanita, and I am telling you how much I love you pouring my tenderest words into the goblets of your ears, tying our hearts together more tightly with the golden thread of respect and devotion. How eloquent. And that's what he told us to respect women. Uh, and I'm telling you, we were trained like Pavlov's dogs almost <laughs> because we got that left hook if We didn't open the door for a mother or any female close by. Uh, and we had a younger cousin, Caroline, who really took advantage of that, and she would report to my father that we did not open the door on a regular basis, but i 'm glad he did because he 'd instilled in us this sense of respect for women, and too often young men don 't have that and Our family here, Dara and uh, David um, and, uh, where the, and there he comes there 's Clarence Mitchell, Jr. Uh, third. He might not be able to get up on the top bunk tonight, but he did at one point. (laughs) Your brother was describing the exploits uh, of uh, one of Dad's visits. And um, I'm going to – the other thing you need to know is about the Civil Rights Act, and he always says be accurate. There were all of these titles. There were 11 titles to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, And it just didn't deal with public accommodations, but it dealt with the whole employment issue. And it it dealt with standards and gave the ability of uh, the Attorney General to charge people interfering with people the right to vote. And then he used to delight in the fact that uh, the first female pilot for uh, Delta Airlines came up to him and said, Oh, thank you, Mr. Mitchell. He said it was this young uh, white woman who wanted to thank him profusely for... uh, having that law that it couldn't be discrimination based upon sex yes. and she became the first woman pilot for Delta Airlines um, those are the, and then women on the police force women on the police force could only have an auxiliary role uh, but then that's what that law did he was appointed to the I will finish with this um, the United Nations delegation from the United States of America. And he was the public member. He was appointed by President Ford. And he equally took on all of the tyrants of the world. Uh, he, he's one of the very few persons who condemned Idi Amin when the Israeli passengers were seized from that plane. And Dr. Kissinger and others told him that the American delegation must be won and uh, couldn't say anything. And of course, you know, you don't tell that to Clarence Mitchell. And he told Dr. Kissinger and all of the rest of them. And he gave the speech. And then on South Africa, he condemned that regime. And of course, he was invited to those respective countries, Uganda and South Africa, by their leaders. He never went, though. Um, But here's what he said to them. And this was the speech that even... Senator Patrick Monaghan did not want him to give because they were trying to have some reproach month with South Africa and they were trying to stem the tide of the Russian advances. Here he says, I say to the gallant people of South Africa who are struggling against that system to the whites, to the Asians, to the coloreds and to the blacks that there lie between us miles of ocean And that there are forces which will keep us from knowing what you are doing. But your struggles, your sufferings, your cries for freedom are heard and noted by us. And we say to you that there will come a day when a trumpet will sound and the legions of the free will resume their place in seats of power in South Africa. And change that system from the odious way in which it now operates to one in which free men and women of any color or religion may walk with dignity. Now, this is 1975. And uh, again, Kissinger tried to raise things, but he took the position, he was the public member, and he wasn't under Kissinger or Monaghan. And, of course, he began to know that that was the form in which you discussed these things. Uh, so the other thing is this young man and uh, Mike... Uh, Oleskis back then. He knows the Sun paper obviously was never any great friend of ours. But my father, because of Joe Stern who was really a great person um, asked him to write a column. In the course of that my father told Joe, he says, well you're the editor of the editorial page how come there are no African Americans writing editorials for the Baltimore Sun?" He said, if you want my column, now we've got to find somebody. Joe Stern said, well, we've been looking and looking and, you know, the last ten years, we couldn't find you. He said, well, I have someone. Denton Watson. He became the first African-American editor, editorial page editor of the Baltimore Sun. And very quietly, he did that because he said that to show in children's minds' eyes that that African-Americans could rise to any position and, and more importantly, uh, give back. And know that while he threw those left hooks, uh, when he graduated from college, it was a depression. There were no jobs. So he said he took up what he learned at Pennsylvania and Bloom when he grew up. He became the uh, Golden Gloves champion, light heavyweight, for the eastern seaboard. Uh, and fought under the name of the Shamrock Kid. And uh, was undefeated. Uh, and then became Afro <laughs> reporter. Thank you very much. Did we Let's get see. all of the children? I'm sorry, Clarence. There's uh, Clarence the fourth. Stand up one second, too. And there's Clarence the third. And we have got to pass the microphone to the bear. Um <laughs> well, you don't have to stand up. I just was guessing we people to acknowledge his presence. And just leave
4: it over there, Doc.
5: Okay, thank
4: you. Yeah. One of the things that uh, is, 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 is really special. First thing, I know there's a lot of. They've been running in and out once the bathroom. There's a lot of Mitchells uh, that are here. You know, I I think that one of the things that we miss today, speaking, I guess this is my commentary, that we miss today is the fact that we don't have a lot of men like Clarence. Yeah. And that we don't have a lot of men that even speak with a good, deep voice like Clarence. (laughs) And obviously we don't have a lot of left hooks like Clarence. The last time I've seen a left hook like that was, that Clarence and Bob Cheeks get ready fighting. <laughs> <laughs> Michael remembers that one. In this so, same room. in this same room, that's right. So, you know, I want to give I want to give Clarence the uh, third an opportunity to also give us a reflection here, and let, and let me uh, tell you how much I appreciate you being here as well.
6: Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mike. I want to thank you and Doc uh, uh, for your efforts in putting together this. Uh, celebration of what would have been my father's 100th birthday and uh, I uh, unlike my three younger brothers uh, I'm a midwesterner. I was born in St. Paul, Minnesota (laughs) and uh, my father had taken a job as uh, the executive director of the Urban League in St. Paul and during that period he uh, carried on quite a bit of activity uh, in St. Paul in getting and one of the one of the things was getting the first African American milkman <laughs> in 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 uh St. Paul. Uh that gentleman went on to become a big executive with the Veterans Administration. I can't think of his name. George right? Holland. george Yeah, that's right. And uh he uh, uh my father always taught us that uh we were we uh, should should commit ourselves to serving the people and he used to tell the story about how uh, they lived in an alley off of Gold Street they used to come out uh, of that alley and uh, there were whites who were on the the main street, Gold Street and they used to say, here come them alley kids they ain't gonna never amount to nothing Uh, my father was uh, a tough father and probably would have uh, been uh, uh, chastised by the Department of Social Services <laughs> for uh, the uh, punishment that he applied but I can say to you honestly I needed it. <laughs> I earned I the earned licks uh, that I got uh, and he tried to help me understand that it, it hurt him more than it hurt me and I it wasn't until I was about 21 or 22 that I figured out. But uh, he was also gentle and loving. And I knew that when I was disciplined, it was, it was in love. Um, I was rather rambunctious in junior high school. And uh, my, no. parents, <laughs> my parents decided to send me to St. Aloysius Gonzaga High School. In Washington, I used to catch. They talked about busing. I used to catch the train every morning and, and to school, and catch the train back every afternoon. Uh, Gonzaga didn't have a boarding school, uh, so uh, but that was the greatest experience that I could have in preparation for what I ended up uh, doing. Tell him who your classmate was. <laughs> Yeah, my mentor, he, he was a sophomore, and I was a freshman. And uh, the, in, at Gonzaga, the sophomores all meant to pick out a, a uh, freshman to mentor. My, my mentor was none other than Patrick Buchanan. <laughs> and my first two weeks in school, uh, we both were suspended for smoking in the locker room. <laughs> now, of course, he says they were my cigarettes, when I went to Gonzaga, I didn't smoke. I was 13. so But, but uh, they, they were his cigarettes. But, and Time magazine called me once and said, uh, Pat Buchanan has you in his book. And he says that you got, got them, you and him suspended. Uh, and, uh, of course, I said to uh, Time, that I said, well, the Pat Buchanan I know. If the, if the, Dem, the uh, liberals and the, and the Democrats offered him more money than he's getting from the conservatives right now, he would say, I've seen the light. <laughs> 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 I was on the wrong side all the time. <laughs> uh, but uh, that Gonzaga experience, uh, first I had an opportunity. As you know, the schools in Baltimore were segregated at the time. So I had an opportunity to uh, be in classes uh, with uh, Caucasian uh, young men who were uh, my classmates and uh, it, it helped me to, to, to blossom. Uh, I was the only African-American student in the freshman class out of 209 freshmen. So I really, uh, it was really a challenge <laughs> to me coming from Booker T. Junior High School <laughs> uh, to Gonzaga. But every afternoon, when I got out of school, I had to go to his office, my father's office. And that's when I learned what... I used to complain that my father couldn't make the, the uh, father and son banquets, and he, Uncle Perrin and Uncle George used to sur- be surrogate fathers for us. Uh, and uh, then that's when I had a chance to see why he was absent so much. He made the sacrifice of taking on the the most uh, virulent racist in the congress of the united states and he treated them like gentlemen and i remember once getting on the elevator with him in the us senate and uh, a stennis of mississippi came on and uh, my father said, Senator Stennis, so good to see you. And, of course, I knew who Stennis was. And after we got off the elevator and Stennis continued on, I said, Dad, why did you, uh, why were you so nice to him? Uh, he, he, he doesn't like black people. He, he hates black people. My father said, there will never come a time, there may come a time in the political system when somebody like a Stennis Will give you a vote just in order to uh, even the playing field. And as long as it's not identified as a civil rights uh, legislation, uh, I can pick up some of the Southern votes. My father never uh, took for granted that anybody, uh, that, that any member of the Congress would be against them, he talked to everybody. And uh, the, the lessons that I learned in observing him were what held me in good stead when I got elected to the Maryland House of Delegates. When I was 22 years old and my father and mother both said, no, you're too young to run, don't run now. But they, well, they were listening to the radio <laughs> and heard, heard on the radio that I had filed for the House of Delegates. Uh, and my mother and father called up, you didn't tell us about this they said, but all right, we, we, let's go, let's go forward, and Michael became my campaign manager. I only had $536 in the campaign fund, and Michael was the campaign manager with his uh, 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 OBE, uh, his fraternity, high school fraternity. He was in high school at the time. And Kiefer used to come down from Lincoln on, his, uh, uh, on weekends and, and uh, during breaks and uh... so it was a family affair and the young men who worked with from michael's uh, fraternity who worked with us all went on as a result of the the uh... experience of of having a win and getting somebody elected to public office went on to do other kinds of great things Um if you if you look up the uh... you know the, the names of the guys and find out what they're doing now they're all doing good things and one of them was Joseph Ahmed who was the I understand the speaker at uh, Union Baptist uh, on Saturday Sharp Street, uh, oh, Sharp Street on Sunday uh, and uh, so that uh, I, I say to you and I, you've heard from my brothers so I, I will, will uh, uh, keep it short but, and, and conclude but I do want you to know that uh... my father was never uh... retired folks would say oh you retired from the n-a-c-p he said i retired from the n-a-c-p he said i didn't retire from fighting and as you know uh... my father had a big fight uh... over getting the engineering school for morgan state university and he was on the board of regents of the university of maryland Uh, But he persuaded University of Maryland, even, to yield in order that Morgan could have the engineering building. And it was um, uh, the president at the time, uh, Richardson, who named that building for him. If you ride up uh, Paring Parkway, you'll see right up there that building, Clarence Mitchell. Uh, My father also never looked for recognition. He did things quietly. Uh, I'm very fortunate that, and he reveled in the fact that his sons, uh, two of his sons, had pursued politics because he recognized that politics was the art of how, who gets what, when, and why, and he was able to lobby so successfully Uh, that it was an example for us. When I got to the legislature, the rural boys ran the state legislature, but I was able to work up coalitions because I had seen how my father put together coalitions. Uh, And we passed the first public accommodations law my first term in the House of Delegates, and it passed by seven votes. And my presence there helped me to get nine additional votes that we wouldn't have gotten because they said that it was a shame that uh, since I was now a member of the body that I couldn't go to lunch with them, couldn't stay in the hotels, and uh, on those grounds, and my, I made my appeal based on that. And uh, some of them came to me afterwards and said, you, you changed our minds. And uh, that, uh, so, so the, again, I have to, say that my father and my mother, they were a team. And uh, I am blessed to have had the parents that I had. I'm blessed to have had the grandmother that I had. Uh, I'm also blessed to have had uh, my fraternal grandmother, who was a little lady, humble, uh, didn't have any money, uh, but uh, who, who loved her grandchildren, and she gave us love. And she would, and, you know, sometimes grandparents want to give their kids toys and that sort of thing. She always had something sweet. We would go to the YMCA during, at, after school and then stop over. My grandmother lived right across the street. And we would go over to her house because we knew we were going to get some cake, some cookies. We were going to get something sweet that she had baked. Uh, so they came from parents that were humble. They came from parents that were committed to public service. And uh, both, well, my grandfather and my mother, Clarence Mitchell Sr., was a waiter. And he uh, worked uh, downtown at the Renner Hotel. His dream was that his sons would become waiters at the Renner Hotel. Now, that uh, uh, was his, his vision for them. And of course, as you know, they all went on to do far more than that. Uh, again, I thank you for this. Uh, I also want to thank all of you who've come uh, to this evening. Uh, I just want to explain, I've, I had surgery on my neck, and um, the uh, nerves and that sort of thing have affected my balance. So I'm learning to walk all over again. I've also had both hips replaced, uh, and I have uh, four stints in the arteries to my heart. And I tell folks I'm like a, a used car. They put in all new parts, so I'm going to be good for another 100,000 miles. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you. I mean, they may, they may have put in a lot of parts, but at least your heart is always where we need it. To be. The final thing we
5: did want to say, we wanted to thank these two young men. Uh, Michael Johnson, give him a hand, and Doc Cheatham. Now, Michael didn't tell you that his mother was the, one of the main leaders of 1199E, the Nurses Union. And my father just happened to be observing the picket line, and he was supposed to be on the picket line and came back out of it. And my father was there to greet you, Michael. And uh, much to his chagrin, he put him back on the picket line. And, but that was his way of gently encouraging young people to do what is right because he, he said that in his life that he saw so many miracles that he said there was a preacher who said, used to say that the, the world end flat and the sun do move. But after watching, and you see those two windows downstairs, and knowing that Thurgood Marshall was on the Supreme Court, and look at the progress we've made in this city and state and nation. Uh, As Clarence Mitchell used to say, he said, I don't know about the world being flat, but he said, I believe the sun do move.
1: (laughs) And I'd like to just add one thing uh, for the audience. Uh, My medical office is at 1230 Druid Hill Avenue. And my waiting room has the memorabilia of my family with the theme how apartheid was eliminated in Maryland. And all the school groups who come to see that, uh, the thrill is they all change their minds on the major in terms of public service. The door prize is to guess how many presidents are rep- represented in the pictures in the room and I'll clue you in, there nine. Yeah.
4: <laughs> with the uh, 20 minutes that, that we, we, we we're so blessed to have uh, with the library, we would want anyone, to, if they have any questions or they have any comments, but at the same time, you know, um, there, there's, an, there's an incident that I have, a personal incident that I have, uh, in 63 in July uh, at Gwynn Oak Park. Hmm. I was six years old and must have been crazy. Because we left from Metropolitan, I think it was Presbyterian or Baptist church, and my mother didn't know; she thought I was going to go swimming, down Park Pool, and Reverend Dobson and a few of the pastors had taken us down to protest Oak Park. They called it the Firecracker demonstration, and they was handcuffing even us five and six year olds. And it just so happens that uh, one of the three Mississippi. Uh, uh, civil rights workers who was murdered uh, was also a Shruna, was also I may not be saying the, the name correctly uh, was also there Goodman 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 no but the that was here me. in Baltimore and uh, who also held some hands but when we all got taken to Rogers and Liberty Heights there was a jail there after they had even moved some people to Pine Pine Street or whatever the story goes that one of the first people that came to check on the children was Clarence Mitchell Mm -hmm. and so I was not only indebted that you also was there uh, to check on me uh, your family was there to check on me but I know that the history of our family has known each other because you know we may not have been out front but we fried the chicken and drove the cars so uh, I just want to ask our guest speaker right now what do you think Clarence Mitchell would say today as we have our first african-american president
3: that's what he worked for one of the things he worked for that's right. <laughs> uh, he would have been uh, most proud because uh... that's uh, a demonstration of uh, everything <coughs> of all the benefits of the civil rights laws and all the changes that he sought that we now see in the uh, presence of uh... Barack Obama, in the White House with his lovely family there, because we cannot also forget the f- presence of the family and how, uh, how much of a tribute to the nation they are.
4: Uh, to, to any of the Mitchell brothers uh, that are around, one of the things that we, Doc and I, have, have discussed as much as we can, and I would encourage the audience, it is unfortunate that, it is fortunate that he, he was like he was, because obviously a lot of success wouldn't have happened. But it's unfortunate that the the line in the lobby doesn't have the... the, I don't have the satisfaction of the line of the lobby being able to be exposed a lot more here in Baltimore City. There's an old African proverb that says something like, you always hear the stories of the Hana, but you never hear the story of the line. But but I
1: think that as my brother Michael who negotiated... uh, My brother Michael who... Uh, negotiated with the Library of Congress when those 10 trucks came to get over 5,000 documents uh, of my parents to convert them to CD-ROM for the entire country. And my brother Michael is the repository of another 5,000 more. (laughs) But I think that, from a true historian's point of view, We'll continue to get the message out. Uh, we are always inundated by those writing books uh, and uh, giving the perspective of that time.
5: Uh, my father used to repeat what his mother-in-law, Lily Jackson, said. Jesus only had 12, and 11 of them <laughs> were with him, and the other one was lying on him and trying to get him killed. But Jesus changed the whole world and never took a lot of numbers. And he would say that um, there is an innate goodness in people, whether black or white. Uh, as you heard his, um, that message to the United Nations, uh, that uh, people of goodwill will come out. And the fact that Denton has proposed this and has, has initiated already the, uh, this project to put the bust of Clarence Mitchell in the Capitol... Uh, of the United States of America is one of the more fitting kinds of things because he literally changed the fabric of this country and that's what is the untold story and that's why Denton uh, has chronicled this Um, he got Strom Thurmond everyone to appoint the first African American federal judge in South Carolina was that not a miracle? (laughs) And we think my father knew about his, his daughter, but in convincing him. Uh, and then he went to William Donald Schaefer, who was all ready to name uh, someone else Commissioner of Baltimore City Police. And I took my father down. He was only in 30 minutes. Um, Mayor Schaefer didn't come back to the door, but my father came out smiling. And uh, thereafter, Bishop Robinson was appointed as the first African-American uh, commissioner of police for Baltimore City these are the things that you know that there shouldn't be African American History Month and in his acceptance speech to the Spingarn Medal he said my roots are in the continent of Africa he said but my forebears helped build this country and made the roads and did the things that were necessary he said I am an American too and that's what We have got to establish that this fabric is necessary, that in young people's eyes, and he thought that was what was necessary, that in the mind's eyes, Kiefer talked about his painting. And my mother was so upset that Kiefer – my mother used to say, I want you to taste freedom. So we would go to Philadelphia and New York to eat dinner and uh, wherever so that we wouldn't have to sit in segregated facilities, and then they would take us to meet whomever and then I remember you know uh, Paul Robeson coming by the house and uh, in fact he has some of his records and he sang for us um, and then thereafter you can understand what Hoover thought of that um, and uh, also bringing in people from all, Thurgood Marshall and my recollection was that he was eating a lot of the fried chicken and now I'm so upset I wish I had made sure he got more from what he did and my name is Michael and my father was at Lincoln and Thurgood Marshall and Langston Hughes says no, there were three other Mitchells there at the time so they said we're going to give you the name Mike and that's where Michael comes from Langston Hughes and Thurgood Marshall so that isn't too bad having someone name you and I say these things because Juanita Mitchell went to Leaden Hall and the Riverside Pool which Clarence was involved in and there was a little boy there who would come Uh, from the city's recreation facility and this was 1966 after public accommodations had passed but the population at Riverside felt blacks could not swim in their pool although it was a public school and the young man that Juanita Mitchell and Clarence uh, squirted over was none other than Elijah Cummings who said that was seared in his memory that he said I was a little alley boy and Ms. Mitchell and Mr. Mitchell took time with me and said you were going to rise to everything that is possible and would be in touch with him. And sure enough, Elijah became a Phi Beta Kappa, most people don't know, at Howard. So that kind of thing is more of this word getting out. People will know uh, that you can never give up on our children. And someone had given up on little Elijah Cummings. We wouldn't have his voice in the Congress.
1: One of my... uh profound perspectives in terms of what my father did with that 64 civil rights bill, insisting on that paragraph, if you receive federal funds, you cannot discriminate. And that opened up all of the hospitals and medical schools throughout the country. The first black graduate of Hopkins Medical School was in 1967, Robert Gamble. Hopkins rushed to comply with that law. And so uh, it shows his far reaching impact. Uh, No more segregated hospital wards as Hopkins had. Uh, uh, No more uh, attempts to keep uh, African Americans, medical professionals off of staffs of all of the hospitals in Baltimore uh... that vision prepared the way for a new cadre of young healthcare care professionals right. uh, what
4: about what was the relationship of the, 60, the march on Washington? What was Clarence's
3: <laughs> relationship with the march on Washington? I've read your book but I'll... <laughs> Clarence, uh... of course the march on Washington was organized uh... initially or the organization, the, organize, the organizing of the march in Washington, was done really under, under the umbrella of the NAACP. Right. It was Roy Wic- uh, A. Philip Randolph, who initiated the call again for the march in Washington. He had done so back in 1941, and that sparked the beginning of the modern civil rights movement. It led to the creation by Roosevelt of the Fair Employment Practice Committee, which is where Clarence Mitchell also cut his eye teeth in the matter of uh, working with the federal government in implementing that uh, Executive Order 8802 that was issued by Roosevelt. That was the beginning of the modern civil rights movement right there. and. Uh, It's interesting that many scholars initially, when I began uh, challenging the assertions that the modern civil rights movement began with King and uh, the Montgomery Bus Boycott, and also with uh, uh, Thurgood Marshalls, uh, with the Brown versus Board of Education uh, school desegregation decision, uh, it took quite a while for many to really begin to see or accept quietly uh what I was saying as the truth. That is really the reality that the modern civil rights movement did not begun, begin later, but it, but in much earlier at that time during World War One uh, and uh that militant period. So uh this nineteen sixty uh civil rights uh nineteen sixty Martin Washington was again the NAACP's uh uh, baby to an extent. It organized that. And A. Philip Randolph, not A. Philip Randolph, Bayard Rustin, was brought in to uh, do the day to day organizing. And Clarence, there, as Bayard explained to me, was essential for the success of the organizing of that uh, demonstration. So King came in and uh, he gave that very extremely eloquent speech which he had been giving. Uh, for uh, he, which he had given several times earlier, but it's just then that he got the national, fo- uh, the worldwide forum to deliver it, and it became, in some people's memory, uh, King's March. But fair enough. Uh, but Clarence, many did work there, and many others did speak at that march. It was not just King's.
4: If 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 I, I had mm. a question,
5: there's in this three, one I'm other sorry, thing on that. Um, I spent the night with my father. Yes. I, like my brother Clarence, needed more of Clarence Mitchell's attention from time to time. And so my summer of '63 was spent uh, with my father in Washington. That night, um, it was incredible. We spent the night in his office at 100 Massachusetts Avenue, the intersection of Massachusetts and New Jersey Avenue. And to see Walter Rufer come by. Uh, from United Auto Workers and um, just a host of young people from these colleges. Uh, You even had uh, uh, Senator Matthias's mother, Bradford, who was from Massachusetts, an old line that came in the Mayflower uh, was there holding hands in this incredible group of people. And my father noted to me that this was the same... A uh, day, and he had heard through the wires that Dr. W. E. B. Du Bois had died in Accra, Ghana, and uh, basically estranged from his country because of the Justice Department, who indicted him at 94 years old for failure to pay some taxes in 1930, and um, and Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, made the arrangements for Dr. Du Bois to come and live the remainder of his life in Accra, Ghana. And he told me that because he said you could have all the marches. And he said that he was really in constant contact with President Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy at the time. That's when I first met, Bobby Kennedy. Because they they had these troops ready in case these black folks coming to Washington were going to tear down the city. And I never forget, Bobby Kennedy said they had a report from Senator Byrd the bird from Virginia, that some blacks were coming up from Virginia and they planned to blow up the Washington Monument and the U.S. Capitol. Well, none of that happened because these were people of goodwill coming together. And he said that you never just, you know, that's the emotional part of it. The hard work is doing the legislative end and educating people. And that's why he went from uh, his days as coming out of that terrible, terrible alley to then on the stage of the United Nations and in essence um, not too many people defied Henry Kissinger Uh, but he hadn't met Clarence Mitchell before and nor had Patrick Monaghan and my father did it in the spirit of bringing people together and that as more and more as he looked at the problem, now this is Clarence Mitchell he said it is really one of class and he saw the multinationals around the world who were exploiting those in Africa and every other place, in Asia, uh, where they looked for natural resources and then would pit one group against another. And then uh, the Middle East, he had some speeches about that, incredibly so. And he said that if Israel had oil, we'd suddenly be supporting everything in Israel. (laughs) And um, he felt that it was the only democracy in the Middle East and that therefore it should be supported, that the rest of this group were by these uh, tyrants and, and monarchies that were ill-suited to govern and were frustrating the hopes of people. And lo and behold, suddenly you, you see what's happening in Egypt and Tunisia. Well, that was Clarence Mitchell's dream. That he said these oil companies are terrible, and that the more we give the opportunity to our young people, to make this happen uh, and let them aspire to everything they want to do, then the better off we be. I might note that, because Clarence Mitchell will talk about respective women, Lisa Marie uh, S- uh, Sonar um, is working assiduously to put the records together, and even and her husband Kamal of Clarence Mitchell and Lily Jackson and um, and Juanita Jackson Mitchell and. Uh, my father always said that um, he was taught that uh, sometimes men were lazy and you needed more women to be involved in the process. And he welcomed their support. And in that spirit, Lisa, you, 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 you bring that dimension to it. Uh, she was a radio host, and, uh, and but she's brought her expertise and to remembering this incredible man, Clarence Mitchell, Jr., who was 6'3", but... Um, he played basketball with us, and, and I was thinking of President Obama. He would have loved to play basketball in the White House with, um, with President Obama. He, he was quite something. He had his own team playing at the YMC on Drew Hill Avenue. Uh, Henry Parks is on his team, and uh, Furman Templeton from the Urban League, and then a host of other people. And he always brought he says his residents of Blooming, Pennsylvania to be on his team, and they won every game uh, for all of the business people. Uh, so with that we thank you for coming out and the best way to honor Clarence Mitchell's life is to help a child help a child and and pierce their psyche to let them know that they can achieve anything they want if it's no more than taking the time to uh, buy some books for them uh, Clarence Mitchell would do it, that's what Reverend Joseph Ahmed said he he said he just did get out of Edmondson High School and but my father said, son, you got to go to college. He said, I prayed myself out of high school. How am I going to get to Morgan State University? So the next thing, Clarence and Juanita Mitchell called Morgan. And, uh, and so Reverend had said, my father and mother said, go see Mr. Stansbury. And the next thing, he was at Morgan State University and got a degree. And then his first job was at the, as an EO officer at the Navy Yard. And then he got promoted to be head of E.O.C at several other governmental agencies because every time he would call Clarence Mitchell and every time they would try to f- frustrate him, um, one time the Navy tried to keep him being promoted and my father said, uh, don't worry about anything. He said, next thing you knew, it was the Secretary of the Navy came and said, son, you're the new chairman of the department. <laughs> uh, and uh, so that's the spirit in which we, we'd want to end. And again, thank you. No,
1: thank yeah, you, I, I just wanted to thank uh, you for having a seminar and as an anecdotal thing, my parents were about education. Uh, My mother, having finished uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania at the age of 16, having a master's at 18. My father was, uh, graduated from Lincoln University at the age uh, in 1932, but he didn't have enough money because of the depression to pay that last bill. So he didn't walk across the stage on a Sunday but was invited up for a Saturday ceremony because he was valedictorian of the class. Yeah. And uh, I, administering to my parents medically as they aged, I remember the fitting comment from my mother. And she said, I believe in reincarnation. If you want to see me again, look for a revolution. Dr. Denton and then, I'm
4: um, Dr. Denton and then Clarence.
3: Once more, uh, for me, you know, I've been doing this for, believe Mm -hmm. it or not, since 1979. Mm -hmm. And so that's been, uh, that is documenting the works of Clarence Mitchell, Jr. And uh, central to that, of course, uh, to that uh, job, uh, was uh, Juanita Mitchell, who uh, encouraged me. She was a griot in terms of relating all of the struggles that went on here, her personal struggles as well as the others involving her husband uh, internally within the NAACP and so forth uh, here locally. But uh, I do appreciate and I've always appreciated the opportunities that I've been given to really preserve the legacy of this uh, great family because uh, that by so doing, I know that I will also be able to leave a mark, my mark, uh, in, uh, in the history Uh, areas of history in that uh, these works, by making these works available because they are extremely essential for the struggle of American history extremely essential for the struggle of legislative history uh, or aspects of the civil rights legislative aspects of civil rights history and so on so I do appreciate the opportunity that I have had all of these years and will continue to do with this mission until at least the seven volumes are out (laughs) Uh, just very quickly
6: at first I I also want to salute. I'm sure it's already been done I want to salute uh, Tony and uh, uh, the Carrie and his lovely wife uh, uh, they have been stalwarts and their family the ancestors before them were uh, side by side with my late grandmother Lily Jackson and you can't be in a room and not recognize the presence of the Carey family, and um, uh, Eleanor Carey and Tony Carey have been uh, carrying on that tradition. Uh, Eleanor did it as Attorney General of the state, uh, and when I saw, when I see Eleanor, and I saw Eleanor and the, the, the things that she did, it reminded me of my mother, because Eleanor was breaking down barriers for women and for African Americans in her various official positions and of course had the support of her husband Tony who has been an outstanding businessman and who I'm sure helped to finance many uh, important causes. Um, I want to salute each of you who have come out today. Uh, You are what my parents were all about. They were about the people and you are never too old and never too young to learn uh, Denton Watson I salute him for his patience like he said some from 79 to 1984 and even beyond 1984 because my dad passed and I remember one of the comments he made to Denton he said you know how much longer are you going to take to do this book and, and uh Denton, I think, told him about uh, a few more years, and he said, oh, Hell, I'll be dead by, by the time you finish this book. Well, uh, the, the thing is that Denton did such an, a meticulous job of documenting. You know, you, you, you cannot begin to imagine what kind of job it was to document Clarence Mitchell's life. Uh, because he did so much and was a part of so many activities and so much progress, uh, and that sort of thing. So, um, so we are, as as Michael says, and I repeat, uh, one of the ways that uh, we pick, can pay tribute to uh, uh, Clarence Jr. is to make sure you get one of his books, uh, which is a reward to for uh, Denton Watson's committed. Uh, Tenacity in getting the, the document for, uh, that, that tells you about Clarence Mitchell Jr., because my father never would have told you. Uh, and I, I ran into a cab driver one day, and the cab driver said the cab driver said, uh, "You're Clarence Mitchell. And I said, "Yes." He said, "Oh, he said, I'm so sorry to hear about your father passing." He said, "I had him in my cab." He said, I never knew that man was so great. When my father passed, as you may remember, every Democratic presidential candidate was there in the church. U.S. senators, members of Congress, even some of them who weren't always on his side were there because of the respect that they had for him. And so I, I wanted to jump, be here tonight. I was running a little late because uh, I was dressing slow. But uh, I wanted at least to, to be here and, and salute uh, Denton Watson for uh, what he has done in educating all of us about Clarence Mitchell, Jr. And uh, we look forward to uh, the work of Lisa, who's carrying on. Michael has been our family historian. And Michael is the one who has collected all the papers. Michael has assort, uh, uh, sorted out all the papers. Uh, still has a bunch more to do, but uh, he's made the sacrifice, and Lisa, uh, my oldest daughter, has uh, taken up the cudgel and is working with Mike uh, and wants to also uh, move ahead. Huh? Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, again, thank you very much, uh, And uh, the rumors of my demise, you can report, (laughs) are not so. Uh, I am in in hiatus temporarily, but you're going to be hearing me again, and uh, uh, God bless all of you. Thank you. Thank
1: you. I've heard from varying people that they think integration somehow uh, spoiled and ruined the close knitness of the black community. But they weren't there when segregation was there. We lived in a ghetto. The northern boundary of the ghetto was North Avenue. Southern boundary was Martin Luther King. The eastern boundary was Utah Place. And it went all the way over to Fulton Avenue. And it was a ghetto. And the schools were segregated. They were overcrowded. And I gave the example of when I integrated Gwynn's Falls, I'd never seen the resources at Booker T in terms of the art supplies and all. So there are a lot of revisionists who want to uh, think that uh, those were better times. They weren't.
4: So again, I want to thank Doc Cheatham uh, and the Mitchell family and and, and Professor Watson to come out.
1: And we thank you you very much for coming this evening.